out. Good morning. Welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. Grand Rounds is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants and support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Patma will disclose his relationships in his presentation. To claim CME credits today, please take our survey. If you are viewing online, the link will be posted in the chat. If you're here in person, you'll receive the QR code at the end of the session. If you have a question for the presenter, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers may type questions into the chat and we'll read them at the end. And now Dr. Samity will introduce Dr. Patma. Well, good morning. Um, it's a special treat um, to have really one of the foremost um, um, clinician investigators and minds in interventional cardiology with us this morning. Um, Dr. Jeff Popma is currently vice president and chief medical officer of the coronary renal denervation and structural heart um, parts of Medtronic, a position that he's held since June of 2020. 
Um, uh, Jeff received his uh, bachelor's in economics from Stanford University, um, and then received an MD with highest distinction from University of Indiana, Indiana University School of Medicine. He completed his internship residency and chief residency in internal medicine and cardiovascular fellowship at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Subsequently, he completed his interventional cardiology fellowship at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He's been formal faculty at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Papa most recently was director of interventional cardiology and clinical services at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Papma uh, was also director of the uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Imaging Core Laboratory, which completed over 500 studies in coronary renal denervation, peripheral vascular disease, and structural heart. He has also been the national and local investigator for a broad array of new technologies, including bare metal stents in those days through a lot of the drug eluding stents, distal protection devices, CTO devices, and techniques, as well as carotid peripheral revascularization and transcatheter valve therapies. Um, Jeff is past president of Society of uh, Cardiac Angiography and Intervention, past co-chair of the Interventional Council of the ACC. Dr. Popma currently serves and um, actually still on Jack uh, Intervention Editorial Board, but he's served on numerous editorial board uh, boards and obviously has had enormous number of really highly impactful publications. And um, sort of in my journey in interventional cardiology has been literally one of the leading lights of our field. So um, Jeff, we greatly enjoyed dinner last night with you. We wanna thank you so much for joining us. Um, and sharing uh, today, you're gonna talk to us about the role of the clinician scientist in medical device development from concept to reality. So come on up, Jeff, thank you. Thanks, thanks. I'm really old after that introduction, and there's been a lot of years I've been under the bridge as things go. It is great to be here. I have learned so much about the institution over the last 24 hours. Our teams um, have been incredibly complimentary of the teams you've built with Ronnie and Greg and, and all the infrastructure that you have. It's pretty clear that you guys work in a really special place. And I'm thrilled to be here. Hopefully I can make this all work back and come visit you again you know, uh, very soon. So let's kind of go to um, my disclosure. I, by the way, I work for Medtronic, <laughs> so full time. So the, the challenge is that when you work for a company now, I have to figure out what I'm gonna say that's gonna be entertaining at a Grand Rounds. And so what I thought as I tell some stories, show a little bit of data, tell how we got to where we are today. But I have to say, as we think about what transcatheter valve therapy is, we think about the fact that it's a team. Now, look, Mark Zuckerberg has a whole big, long career of stuff, including being a Harvard dropout after, after freshman year. But he came back and gave the Harvard uh, commencement address in 2017. And I gotta say, it was really good. And if you YouTube Google it, I mean, you say, wow, this guy's like matured from the time that he was a freshman at Harvard. Because he talked about creating purpose and think about this and think about it with respect to structural heart is that what, what you wanna do is you wanna live in a world that you have purpose. All of us get up to take care of our patients and we all are here because we wanna create purpose in our lives. And he said, there's three things you have to do. You have to take on big meaningful projects. None of us knew how to do transcatheter valve replacements, aortic or mitral a decade ago. We all were learning. We had no idea, but it saves lives. No question about it. We wanted to find, redefine equality. Well, I mean, the heart surgeons and the interventionalists and everybody who's in the case together and the echocardiographers, they're a team, right? There's no one more powerful voice, or maybe here, but there's no one more powerful voice than another in most of the labs because you have to define equality. You're all there together as a team. And then you have to build community. And I think one of the things we've really learned about transcatheter valve replacement as things have gone on is we've built community. I mean, you can go now to the conferences and everybody shares their experiences about how they're actually gonna do better over time. 
Well, it's a long place to get here, right? And there have been people, there have been shoulders that have been built, built over time. And, um, you know, when you think about X-ray and all the things we have now, including the Rampart system, which drops the radiation dose tremendously, it all started with William Rentkin in, in 1895, who said, I think I can put X-ray beams on a fluorescent medium and, and get an X-ray picture. And what's interesting with respect to equality is it's not his hand, it's his wife's hand. You can see her wedding ring that's right there. And so you can imagine how that discussion went, come here, honey, I want to, I want to try something really new that's never really been done before. And I'm going to give you some radiation and just put your hand out there and see, we'll see how it goes. Well, it's been enduring for years and years and years. And everybody now, it's a, you have a radial lab and everybody now does brachial vein catheterizations and you don't think anything about it, right? Your fellows do it, we do it, everybody does it. But it really was in 1929 that Werner Forsman, who was a German urology resident, said at a party one night, I think that this vein connects to the heart. No, it doesn't, no way. So the story goes, had to go down two floors in the in 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 the in the hospital center where he worked, and a nurse went with him, and they snaked a urology catheter up from the left brachial vein, snaked it up, X-ray, snaked it up, X-ray, snaked it up, and then this is the final picture of a urology catheter that's been put all the way from the brachial vein, all the way to the right heart, saying, "Hey, there's a connection that's there." So you thought, okay, well that doesn't sound so good. 1929, by the way, right? And so you thought, well, he probably went to cardiology and he probably started everything, right? It was probably great. Not so. He, he did it several more times, usually after a party and would go. And so finally, he actually lost his residency training program and it turned out to be a general practitioner in Norman, Germany. But that's the discovery, right? N nobody really figured out how to do that until 1956, when out of the blue, he's a practitioner in Northern Germany. And he gets contacted, oh, by the way, you've won the Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize along with uh, uh, Rich Ricard, Dickinson Rickard, and Andre Cornon for both right heart catheterization, coronary angiography, because he was the first. Imagine, had no idea, didn't do any more, anything like that, but he was the first. So these were crazy discoveries by people that were under 40 years of age. And you're gonna see the central theme coming through here of folks being under 40 that have had great ideas that have actually moved forward for things. Now. You're, we're in Atlanta, you know, this we're all kind of the birth of PCI with Spencer, everybody who's around. But there's a couple of backstories behind these folks who are on these pictures here. Now, right in the middle is Andreas Grunzik, who was so prominent at Emory in terms of promulgating um, angioplasty. Um, Zeitler is an angiographer from, from Australia, from Austria, to the left. And then there's this guy, Charles' daughter. And Charles' daughter was actually the first person to invent transluminal angioplasty. First one to invest it. And he talked about it with Mel Judkins, they published and what did it do? Well, this is a technique that the pediatric cardiologists still use. It's a daughter, it's a daughter methodology. And what you do is you put a catheter through it, pass it past the blockage, and then progressively dilating the, the blockage larger and larger just by passing catheters, larger and larger catheters. So no balloon, no nothing, just the daughter effect. And so this little lady is the first lady who had a percutaneous transluminal intervention. This is what her superficial femoral artery looked like, stenosed. And on the left side was her ischemic leg before and after which healed up. So it's not miracle, you know, it's not, but it was enough to restore the blood supply so that the toes could heal up and she could be okay. And then there was the story that I think Spencer probably told you, you know, a couple a couple years ago of the first patient who underwent a LAD angioplasty, 38 years old, and his physician, Andreas Grunzik, who was also 38 years old. Now the consent form goes something like this and probably Spencer tells the story better than others, but Bernie Meyer was a fellow. And Bernie Meyer is now one of the senior cardiologists in Bern, Switzerland, having built an illustrious career in intervention. But he was a fellow back then. And so he went to Mr. Boffman and he said, well, we've got this new procedure in you that's never been performed from anybody else. And you don't have to have open heart surgery. We don't really know if it's going to work. The surgeon's going to be ready to take you emergently to surgery if it doesn't really work. And we're, and, and we're going to see how it goes. 
And so Mr. Bob was thinking about it. I'm not really sure. And then they wheeled in somebody who had been to bypass surgery. No offense to our heart, heart surgeons here. That somebody had bypass surgery. Tubes, you know, imagine this is like 19, you know, 1977. Tubes, ventilator, all the kind of stuff. And he looked over and he said, yeah, I'll do this non-invasively. I'm in, I'm in, go ahead. Got the consent, which was great. This was the indeflator. This is what it looked like. It was CO2, it was huge. You know, it was not something like we have now, which is little indeflators to inflate. It was actually CO2. And then of course, this is the catheter. And then this is the dilation, which worked with a single inflation and then added dodge. This is the cath note that came out of, out of this lot simpler cath notes now than they have than, than they have right now. And actually it was called coronary daughter. There was a coronary daughter technique, even though the balloon was actually used. And then Andreas Zorzik then talked about it a few months later at the American Heart Association, filed a patent by 1980, didn't make a dime off the patent by the way, but filed a patent in 1980 and then taught and taught and taught and taught here in Zurich. You can see just so many of the notable names that showed up in Zurich, Switzerland. That auditorium still exists. If you go over to a University of Zurich course, you'll sit in that auditorium. It's the worst auditorium for seats in the planet, but that's where everybody went. And then it promulgated and therapies went forward and all of a sudden percutaneous transluminal coronary angioplasty was around. Now, there were personalities. There were personalities. Jeff Hartzler, Mid-America Heart Institute. He was the, he was the proponent of multi-vessel angioplasty. Like somewhere would do three vessel disease and 15 or 20 different lesions within the coronary tree. That was multi-vessel. And Grace Gronzik didn't like that. He just wanted to do a single lesion, fix it, be done, single vessel disease, multi-vessel disease, no surgery. And you can see when Jeff was talking, and Grace wasn't very happy during the discussion, right? About that, because he thought he needed to keep it clean. And then Barry Rutherford, who's still, still around, still operating at Mid-America Heart Institute, was a chronic total occlusion guy. He said, you guys are nuts. Let's just fix the total blockages and fix it. So these were the personalities in the early days of the meetings. Um, this was when I was a kid, you know, growing up in the system as they were there. And it was pretty amazing. And the database was a pretty simple database. It was a chalkboard. That's how they kept track of everything. Now, at that time, I was at University of Texas Southwestern um, as an intern. And one of the things that happened there, um, again, Mike Brown was about 36 years old at this time. He's the guy on the right. Joe Goldstein was a little bit older, more senior. And, and I took care of a woman who's a girl whose name was Stormy Jones. She was seven years old. And she presented with an acute myocardial infarction, anterior acute myocardial infarction, seven years old. What do you do, right? We weren't given thrombolytics to a seven-year-old. We, we didn't have equipment to do any kind of angioplasty on a seven-year-old. So what do you do? Well, you let her have her anterior infarct. And that's what she did. And so she was homozygous for familial hypercholesterolemia. Both mom and dad had bad genes. And so she ran total cholesterol levels of about 12 to 1,400. So that's not good, right? That's not good. So Brown and Goldstein then were thinking about um, how they're gonna fix that. And what they did were, they were my attendings on the ward and I, Mike Brown, the guy on the right, was my attending when he got the Nobel Prize because what they did is they established scientifically the knockout mouse model. So he said, look, let's find the HMG coase reductase that seemed to be from Stormy's liver, the enzyme that was overactive. Let's go ahead and do a knockout model. Let's kind of take that away. If you knocked out the HMG coase reductase enzyme, then the LDL levels drop to nothing. So, okay, now that, that mouse model, now we've shown that you take it away. So, what do they do? They came up with HMG coase reductase inhibitors. All the statins now really came out of that initial discovery. And you can, some ways, say that it came out of actually Stormy Jones' liver, which is where that where it really, really came from from discovery. Again, Mike Brown's 38 years old. Over dinner, I should have told the story that what Mike Brown's Nobel Prize acceptance speech was all about, but that's for a later time. Um, then you're going to have Cindy Grimes here, I think, at, at peace. And so I was a kid then, um, kid, uh, quote unquote, at University of Michigan as a fellow. And there were three key people, all under 40, that were there. Bill O'Neill, Cindy Grimes, and Eric Topol. And in those in the late... 1980s, early 1990s, they were thinking about how to treat anterior wall myocardial infarctions. And so these three individuals working first out of the University of Michigan, and then Bill went to Beaumont, Cindy went to Beaumont, came up with three classic New England Journal articles, all under 40 years old. 
And, and the first one was with Bill showing that you needed, you know, compared to, compared to intracoronary streptokinase, which we were giving back then, balloon angioplasty works. Then Eric said, well, if we give lytics like TPA, then maybe it's a little dangerous to do it immediately. Maybe we should wait and kind of do residual disease. And then Cindy did the, uh, the randomized trial that said, you know, we should really think about STEMI for patients with acute myocardial infarctions, all Newman Journal, all within several years, all changing what we do. And so when Cindy's here, we have to thank her for STEMI call because you know, the STEMI call that we have right now where you have to come in within three or four hours, it's all out of this work done. Again, by investigators who are kids, all under 40 doing this stuff. So I went to the hospital center after that. And, and these are classic individuals at the hospital center. In the early 1990s, Lowell Sattler, Gus Bouchard, Marty Leon, as a, as a youngster, is there. He runs TCT and moving forward, Gus Bouchard, Kenny Kent, late Kenny Kent, probably the best CTO operator in the planet um, that went forward. And so we were all, we were all learning and growing. But in the mid-1990s, and again, Marty was probably 38 at that time, something like that. Again, making huge discoveries but before he even turns forward, we're not old. I mean, I just want to say, but, but, you know, a lot of the discovery is coming from the, from the young folks, you know, Ronnie's age. And so we went through this era in the nineties, which were crazy times where we thought, you know what, if we can just move, get rid of the plaque, then all atherosclerosis is going to go away. It's going to be very, very simple. So we had crazy devices that we did the directional atherectomy catheter with John Simpson who's still around now doing incredibly important work in the CTO arena with OCT and recanalization for OCTs, but came up with the directional coronary atherectomy catheter. And that catheters in the, in the right side, we put it down the artery, it was huge, you know, 10 French guiding catheters. We would cut out the plaque, put it in a bowl, take it up to the patient. And I remember at the University of Michigan doing a DCA case, taking that up to the patient saying, look, this is what we got out. He said, did you get it all, doc? I said, yeah, we got it all. We got it all. Well, we had no idea that atherosclerosis was such an ubiquitous disease, and we were just getting micro tips of the iceberg out at that time, but we thought it was working. And so Don Bain, who, you know, Greg knows and, and others, you know, when he, when he was alive, he'd passed, um, unfortunately, several years ago, did, did trials where he did a randomized trial where he said, let's do directional atherectomy versus balloon angioplasty. And you know what? It worked. Lowered the recurrence rate. Things got better, better lumens. We talked about optimal atherectomy, and Don was really part of all that. And then there were other inventions. There were other inventions. Rotoblader, which you still use today in your lab, was around forever. Um, Maurice was under 40 when he, Maurice Bookbinder, when he really started all of this, along with Simon Sturzer and David Auth, the inventor. This looks pretty similar to the device that we used in 1990, right? It's still kind of available today. We have CSI, we have Shockwave, we have other things now. But those were inventions were very important. Of course, Jim Margolis from, from Miami, I talked about later. Now, you know what? We figured out that none of that stuff worked, right? We, you know, we now use adjunctively rotational atherectomy, calcium modification, shockwave sort of thing to get a better stent result, but they weren't definitive as treatment modalities. So Julio Palmas and Richard Schatz, who was also under 40 when he came up with this, said, listen, let's put a bare metal stent into the artery. Um, that was in the Early 1990s, our surgeons said, are you crazy? You're putting metal tubes inside the coronary arteries to scaffold. Turns out that's the only stuff that really worked. But to prevent blood clots, we didn't use Plavix like we do now. We had, we had heparin, dextrand, coumadin, all the work we did to anticoagulate people to prevent stent thrombosis because these caused clots. Well, life changed. Life changed when we had drug loading stents. The Cypher stent was a first of the drug-loading stents that was really available. This is a picture from the first in the world stent implantation with drug-loading stent by Eduardo Sosa, who's on the right. He's the father-in-law of, of Alex Abizide and the dad of, um, of, um, of, of Amanda Dr. Sosa. And then Patrick Soroy is on the right. And when we did these first studies in 2000, these were the angiograms and we had the opportunity to be the core lab as we went through this thing, but this is a stenosis in the upper circumflex. This is the post result. And then out to four years, no luminal, 
we were high-fiving ourselves and saying, you know, I don't know what the surgeons are going to do. They're going to have to get a day job or something because, you know, I don't know what they're going to do because this is going to cure disease. Well, it didn't cure disease. And there were and there were things that happened as we talked about metals and drugs and coatings. And it turns out the polymer coatings were not very good. And this is what we learned in 2006. Again, under 40, Eduardo Camazine presented at the ESC meeting in August. Drug-eluting stents killed people. Well, it sounds dramatic, right? At least all the Wall Street folks thought that, but that was a crater of drug-eluting stent use in the United States because of a new disease that we didn't really understand called late stent thrombosis. So we went through the whole concept of, should we do dual antiplatelet therapy? Shouldn't we? How do we manage this? We slowly have gotten back up where now drug-eluting stents are the, are the platform that we use, but for different reasons, because around 2006, we went through a horrible time saying, are these things really safe? And we had to evolve. So we had to evolve because we had to get better stents. They had to be smaller diameters. They had to have less polymer. The polymers had to be more biocompatible. The drugs had to be not toxic to the vessels, but compatible to the vessels. And now that's where we are today with our, with our drug-loading stent piece. And now drug-loading stents are used in virtually every case. But it was a long history from bare metal stents to early drug-loading stents to where we are now. And now these are so deliverable that in the days when you start to tell stories from some of our senior clinicians about the old days when I used to have to put the guiding catheter all the way down the right coronary artery in order to get the balloon where I needed it to go, we don't do it anymore. We've got guideliners, we've got guide extension catheters, we've got a whole bunch of tools that make it a lot easier. So it's a whole lot different today. Now, Habib and I were talking about the importance of this stuff, not right. Can, can we now um, move towards uh, invasive assessment of whether or not the lesion is important. Remember in the old days, if there was a 70% blockage, phew, you know, we would just fix it. You know, we were luminologists, luminologists. But very important trials like the ischemia trial and the courage trial said, wait a second, guys, your stents are not gonna prevent deaths and they're not gonna prevent heart attacks. It made people feel better, angina is better. So STEMIs are different, non-STEMIs are different, but in chronic stable angina, it's really the evaluation of the functional significance of the stenosis that's most important. So what do we do? And I heard a crazy number last night, 90% intravascular imaging, 86% intravascular imaging, high percentage, 70%, 80% of stable cases are actually getting um, some sort of invasive IFR, FFR assessment. That's great. That's, that's state-of-the-art, and that's really where everybody needs to go. And you guys are way, way ahead of that in terms of actually what you're doing. But the question that we're asking in Medtronic is, well, can we do that less invasively? Can we possibly get a functional assessment of the artery without actually doing the without actually doing a wire down the vessel? And there are ways to do it with what Habib's working on and HeartFlow's working on in terms of doing it by CT. We now have a software program that we're in, that we're evaluating about just doing it off a good quality digital angiogram. So you take your pictures load them up into the system, 120 seconds later, you get this reconstruction three-dimensionally of the coronary tree and say, yeah, that lesion's important, that lesion's not important, I don't have to worry about that, before the wire goes in. And that's gonna be more important if you do a lot of imaging assessment on intermediate lesions and not every patient rolls over. So we're evaluating that, it's called CathWorks, it's, it's coming in. Drug-coated balloons, I think, are going to be incredibly important. They have in the periphery. We're now and others um, are all evaluating that in the coronaries. We'll see where that actually goes. And then the other piece that's going to be interesting from two companies, not just ours, but Recore and with Medtronic is talking about renal denervation, ablating the afferent nerve fibers of the renal artery to control hypertension. Catheters are getting better. Recore has an ultrasound device that it uses. Both of them are going to go to panel in the late summer, early fall. So something about the end of the year, likely both Recore and the Simplicity study, uh, the Simplicity uh, catheters will be available. And what do we get? On background of medical therapy, we get about another nine millimeters of, of office based systolic blood pressure reduction. What does that mean? Every two millimeters of office based systolic blood pressure reduction is about a 10% reduction in mortality. So these are important for patients who don't have traditional um, response to therapy. This will, I think, be a big, big move going forward. I'm sure you guys will be very, very much involved with that um, as well as we move forward. 
Well, just switching over to the Taver side, um, we had some real scientists in, in the Taver. The, the, initial, the initial work done by Marty Leon and Elaine Cribier, um, now over 20 years old. Now we had the 20th year anniversary, but we keep having it every year for the last four years. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting to 20 years, we have to get on to 25. But at the same time, a heart surgeon, Zach Sagoon and Eberhardt were developing the superannular valves. So this all happened in Europe in the mid 2000s. Um, and it was incredibly provocative in terms of saving lives and moving forward with things. So the, uh, let's see here, there we go. So this is the first case that we had in, uh, in, in uh, Caracas, Venezuela. I'll show you Dr. Um, um, uh, um, I'll show you the physicians who were part of that in just a second. But this was a, a core valve that went in for aortic regurgitation. You can say patients on bypass, went in and took three valves to get in because with air in the early days, it was 24 French, it was big, hard to keep in the right place, but putting valves in worked. And this patient actually lived for another 12 years afterwards, which was pretty phenomenal. That was the first one through. And then, you know, all, as all of you are aware and, and Ronnie's leading and all that, we, we just, we've had very, very good randomized clinical studies now in all surgical groups to say in the right patient that, that TAVR is a good, um, alternative to surgery in, in the right patient. And of course, that's really transforms what we've done really in the operating world elsewhere. Well, this collage is important because it really says, where are we today in our tavern decision-making process? We have guidelines. But between six you need to have a discussion. And balance. But we think in that middle panel that it's going to ever fails. These discussions in your heart teams with your surgeons and the interventionalists are incredibly important. We need to think about how long the patient's going to survive after surgery if it's done successfully. And we know that the average low-risk 70-year-old patient with an AVR in this country under successful TAVR has about a life expectancy of 12 to 13 years. So we have to think about what happens if the transcatheter valve fails. And we focused a lot on, on durability. So so we need to think about other things as we do. We think about the fact that, you know, we got to get a good results and not have PPM, mismatch. we got to think about coronary access. And we have And these are the valves that are going to be available to us in the United States over the next eight years. We've certainly got Navitor now that's approved in, in high-risk patients. Well, scientific figuring, figuring out this is actually near study right now. See, that's competed as pivotal trials now in follow-up. We've got Evolute, Medtronic, and we've got KPN3, and soon to have um, X4 on that side, and a whole bunch of other valves. Now, for everybody in the audience who doesn't spend life in the cath lab doing these valve procedures, you look at all those and say, how do you tell the difference between these valves? What, what is the difference? They all look the same, right? They all work. They all relieve a stenosis. They all got to be the same. And, and what we're all going to do is we're all going to talk about what the value is, what the value of the different valves and how they different work and how they, how they do it. And one of the things that we've focused on through our investigator group with Mike Reardon and Lars Sundergaard, Dan O'Hara and, and Mike Deeb is the fact we have to think about durability. How long does that valve last? And so what we do from a data and evidence standpoint is say, okay, um, what, how does our valve differentiate from other valves? And it has longer leaflets and reverse canting. We know the gradients are lower. We know that it's got a very strong inflow. We know that the durability is going to be good. And all those things really going to inform as we move forward to talk about things like durability. How long does a valve last? There was a very important randomized trial that was performed in the Nordic countries 
started 10 years ago called the Notion trial, where patients were randomized to surgery or to core valve. It's the first one of those kind of trials. It's done eight-year data, 10 years is coming up, and shows about half the rate of structural valve deterioration, echocardiographic measure um, uh, with, with the superannual valve compared to surgery. We've shown that in our randomized trials in the United States, particularly in small annuli, and those and those um, the development of SVD is, is important. But that's not the only piece. And, I, and I'm going to say, I'm going to give you data from Corval, but we're going to see similar data coming from Portico and from Accurate Neo and, and, and from Edwards coming as well. But we said, let's not just talk about what happens 10 years ago or 10 years from now. Let's talk about what's happening now for the patients. And so we went to uh, a late-breaking clinical trial that Steve, uh, that Steve Jakobich just did at CRT talking about valve performance. And I, I don't, again, I work for Medtronic. I'm disclosed for Medtronic. I'm showing Medtronic data, but I, I don't want that to be the discussion. I want it to be, in general, we have to think about valve performance. And that is, what would you call a successful transcatheter valve, surgical or transcatheter, five years from now? Well, the valve hasn't degenerated. The hole is big enough to get the patients, you know, in a good place. There's no thrombus. And there's no endocarditis. And if you don't have those by surgery guidelines or by our you know, PCI guidelines, then, then things are in good shape. So we did analysis, which we presented. Um, again, these are elderly patients who've been through a heart team who said probably either one is okay, that show that the rate of bioprosthetic valve dysfunction is about half the rate uh, with the superannular valves than it is with surgery, particularly true in smaller annuli, but also true in larger annuli. So, and that really starts within 30 days or so um, after the procedure. And most importantly, that index of valve performance correlates with mortality. So we've got to start thinking about these discussions about going to younger patients, whichever valve it is, about how long is that going to valve is going to last for the patients? How long is that going to last? It's a very, very important piece because when we're dealing with 80-year-old patients, didn't matter so much how long the valve was going to last when we deal with younger patients is a incredibly important piece. And so our team in particular is looking at, um, at, at, at that. Now, the big question now is what happens in younger patients? So we did a study uh, uh, that we randomized 730 patients to, to TAVR to surgery. And we asked the important question, in low-risk patients compared to surgery, what is the death or disabling stroke rate with core valve compared to, or actually Evolute compared to, to, um, to surgery? And, that, and this data will be presented for partner three, which is the Edwards valve at TCT this, this next year. And we found that there was a 30% reduction in death or disabling stroke, P of 0.051, um, when we use this. So is it better than surgery? We don't know that. Does the p-value is not significant, but is it at least probably as good as surgery for three outcomes? Okay. Our surgeons will say, and they say in Europe, where the guidelines say 75 is the youngest age you can treat a patient uh, with TAVR, is we need longer-term data, and we do need longer-term data. And we'll be presented at ESC the results of TAVR in younger patients, which I think is really going to be the important part. A couple other people, Eddie DiMarchana, Renu Vermani. Eddie DiMarchana is a clinician at University of Miami, was the first to describe thrombus in a TAVR valve with our valve. Renu Vermani did the pathology. They reported this. It was a patient who developed a core valve thrombus and then came back and had a had thrombus with a, a valve and valve implantation, ultimately expired. And thrombus turned out to be extremely important. As we've looked at this now, we're studying very carefully to see what thrombus is. Probably relates to the valve design, probably relates to some of the morphology. We're certainly tracking that. And certainly we've not seen, at least out to five years, any increase in thrombosis rates with, with, our, with our valve um, so far out to five years, which is important. But it all relates to the symmetry of the valve. This is data from Paul Siraj's group saying whole hyperattenuation lethal thrombosis all relates to that. And then we have to improve our technique. Certainly the cusp overlap technique, which you guys use here, and I've seen Ronnie present live to our, to our group, um, to our, to our uh, clinical groups. At Medtronic, um, perfect implantation of, of, of that cusp over technique, lowering pacemakers right down to about 10%, and importantly, getting with our new technology some of the, of the things aligned. So I, I think 
one of the fundamental messages for us is we have to figure out how to treat a failed valve. We have workflows for that. It's more technical for the interventional cardiologist, but we have workflows about actually how, how we treated failed valves. This is actually what the pathology looks like in the upper right of a explanted core valve that has failed. And you can see it's very interesting for where the calcification is and leaflets and all that. So, so I think I'll stop on the TAVR side and I just want to close up um, uh, with, with um, we have some new technology with our FX, which you guys use now and, and better techniques. I want to get to just the final parts in the last couple of minutes of just of, of, of mitrals. I think mitral valve disease is really one of our untapped areas that we need to think about more. And I know you guys clip volume is going through the roof here um, with more awareness, including the heart failure special and otherwise, because with the, with the technology that we have available right now, this is the first mitral clip that was performed. Um, uh, and Pat Whitlow, who's up here, is done in Caracas, Venezuela. Now we have good data with, with MitraClip, with the new G4 device, that in the right patients, 90% of patients get to, get to moderate or, or less, uh, to, 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 to um, uh, less than moderate. And that's actually a big move forward because we get pretty good results safely with edge-to-edge -edge repair. And congratulations to Ronnie and the team because they did the first commercial Pascal device, which is the Edwards device. I think yesterday, was it yesterday? First commercial, which is you know at least as good as the MitraClip in randomized trials. And this was actually published as well in the randomized trial for that. So different ways of doing edge-to-edge -edge repair. But this is an important slide um, for the non-invasive cardiologists as well. And that is because what we see with this is a gradation of mitral valve pathology from green, which is simple to treat with either surgery likely or with transcatheter valve therapy, and then more complex Barlow's disease, which at least in its appropriate surgical candidate, that there's, that, that there's probably surgical ways to be able to fix that a little bit better. But if the patient's not a surgical candidate with, with DMR, then we have other ways we can do the edge to edge repair. But these two numbers are important. With simple disease from the trials that were presented, if you have simple, straightforward green zone disease, then your chance of having two plus or greater is 10%, so a very low chance. If the disease is complex with multiple jets and flails and prolapses and all that, then from good studies, both from Pascal 2D and from the G4 registry, if the residual rate is about 25 to 40%. And that means the patient's left with moderate regurgitation and not many options afterwards other than surgery. So, so we've then began to explore how can we think about valve replacement? And I'll just show you a few slides for this. This is our, our program, but there's other programs uh, that, that are also equally as effective with, uh, with transcatheter valve replacement. But ours has two frames, an outer frame and an inner frame. 27 milliliter bovine pericardial valve on the inner frame. It goes in like a mitroclip procedure. So you cross over, you get everything lined up, atrial brim, ventricular brim, and then released. These are fiber results showing very good remodeling uh, with our transapical system. And then this is what it looks like for transfemoral. And we talked last night about your team, about how we'll get everything you know, prepared to get you guys involved in some of our randomized trials when we go randomized with our trepid valve versus tier devices, um, trying to make it as easy as a MitraClip. We're 35 French now, but we'll be 29 French when we move to our randomized trial. And the results have been great so far. We're doing a couple of different studies, particularly in MAC as we move forward. So, so I think one of the things I just wanted to emphasize here is that, there, that, that the discovery that happens with, with all of us right now starts when you're young. And it starts when you're thinking and innovating and all that stuff. And you guys have all of the infrastructure here to do that, to come up with those discoveries that are gonna move things forward and provide excellent care to your patients, which you have. But these are the old generation guard. If I had a picture of myself, I'd put it up there too. You know, between Eddie, you know, Proverly to my age and Eberhard Gruppe and Igor Palacios. We have to identify the younger generation teams that are going to be that are going to be leading us forward. The people that are innovative, and you've got with Ronnie and Greg and all the people that you've got now here, you've got that infrastructure here right now to really make that happen. So let's not stop thinking. Let's not talking inventing. Let's not talking. Stop talking about discovery. Let's not talk about trying to make patients better. 
because all these little incremental advances that we made over years have really allowed us now to have the tools to really treat patients with a variety of different complex and coronary disease. So thank you for your attention. See if there's any questions. Fantastic. Wow, what a, what a tour of history, innovation, inspiration. So that was really, really fun. I've heard the history presented a lot of different ways, but that was, that was awesome. So um, any questions from the audience? Sloan, um, go ahead and grab the. Thank you. That was a really um, exciting presentation. I have two questions for you. The first, I'll give you the easiest one first. What do you think is going to happen when the next NCD national coverage decision comes along and no longer requires surgeon involvement in TAVR? Um, okay. <laughs> that's actually the harder question. <laughs> so, um, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I don't think that there'll, I, I think that the question is going to be, do they sunset the national coverage determination decision? And then, and then the local institutions will decide who's going to be part of everything. So, so to put this in perspective, when, when we had TAVR got approved, um, we made it a team effort. By the way, I mean, we, we, Medtronic did, Edwards did, everybody made it a team effort where there were surgeons who were involved and there were interventionists involved. In fact, it was even worse than that for Medtronic because we had to have a surgeon in all our investigation trials, a surgeon had to be first or second operator. So we always had that commitment to surgery. Mike Mack and Dave Holmes, who wrote the initial NCD along with the folks at CMS, Mike Mack's a surgeon. Jeff Rich was the CMS media area at that point in time wrote the surgical guidelines to be able to have surgeons involved in the procedure. So philosophically, from our perspective, it's always been a heart team decision to move that forward. Now, the national coverage determination decision came because Medicare felt that there wasn't enough evidence for TAVR from the trials we had to really make a decision about whether it's really gonna be good, not from the clinical trials, which is a very homogeneous group, but into real world clinical practice, which is the TBT registry. So they mandated two things. They mandated that, that a heart surgeon and an interventionist be involved in every decision and every substantial portion of the procedure. And they said that you have to put the patients in the TBT registry to get paid. So those two pieces mandated the continuing evidence development fit under the NCD. Now on Monday, Tuesday, we just had a meeting in uh, Washington DC with TBT and with the CMS folks and with the FDA about what to do about the TAVR NCD, what to do about it. If you sunset it and say, let's, let's go away, I don't think it'll get rewritten and take away surgeons, but if you sunset it and go away, what does that really mean? Well, that means that there's no longer a mandate for hospitals to participate in the TVT registry. Is that good or bad? Maybe not so good. The second thing is, is that it would no longer link to payments anymore, the TVT registry, but it would no longer look to payment. And we would stop looking at evidence development in iterative fashion. So I think in general, all the senior folks are saying, what do we do with the NCD? Do we say that we still need to have continuing evidence development? How do we get sites to participate? How do we judge quality? How do we find out if the 20 per year TAVR center is doing good work or not? And do we need to have a volume requirement for the surgical volume in order to open up new TAVR centers. I don't see that the surgeon is going to get taken out of the picture personally. I think that we've got other questions about the NCT that are coming forward, but I, I can't say, I think that would be a disservice to, to the heart team if we did that. So here's the tougher question. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was a medical student when, in, during some of the history you described, and I remember sitting in an audience just like this, and being told by the chair of surgery at Penn that coronary bypass surgery was going to be a thing of the past, along with the specialty that does it. Because as you know, coronary bypass has comprised the majority of cardiac surgical procedures in the United States. <clears throat> now, despite that, we're doing five of them today in this hospital. So it didn't exactly die. That didn't exactly take place. But you need people to be able to do that. I am a little concerned about the impact of the um, very legitimate enthusiasm for transcatheter procedures 
own the cardiac surgery workforce and the, and the specifically the response of companies like Medtronic or Edwards or Abbott or what have you, because we at one point reached a nadir in our profession. When I finished my training in 2004, I think there were about five jobs in the entire country worth having. So people stopped going into it. We started, we went from taking the top of the class, which is appropriate to do some of the hardest procedures in hospitals to the bottom of the class. And about a third of our training program shut down. So there was a big regression. Now that started to turn around pretty significantly. But I think one of the biggest problems that cardiology and the companies that support cardiology are going to have in the next decade is going to be a limited supply of high quality surgeons who can do those residual, more difficult cases. Uh, training has also gone downhill with the 80 hour work week and whatnot. Most of the graduates coming out of cardiac surgical programs today are at best able to do simple cases um, as opposed to more complex cases. And most of what we do in the next 10 to 20 years is probably going to turn into more advanced cases. So what is the, comp the specific question is, what is um, your company or, and other companies similar to yours um, philosophy towards surgery? Because as you said, we're not going away. We're going to be needed. And I think it's actually going to be one of the biggest rate limiters of development of some of the programs that you're enthusiastic about if there's no surgeons around that can perform. I mean, I, I, I motion, I couldn't agree with you more. We talked about this at dinner last night and we, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think particularly, you know, here, here in Georgia, you, you can recruit heart surgeons. And so the few that may be available, maybe you can get them to come to Georgia because it's such a great place and you have a huge system here and it's wonderful. But as you grow your surgical volume, then you're going to have to find more people to come in. I couldn't agree more. When I go out to the Midwest and to the North in particular, and smaller communities and smaller towns, the 60 to 70 year old go-to heart surgeons that, that can do anything upside down are saying, you know, I think I've had enough. And they don't, and there's no replacement. Because as you said, right now with all of the restrictions, and I'll just speak colloquially about the Boston programs, you know, the, the residents who come out of cardiac surgery still need a couple of years of training doing cases because they don't necessarily always get to be in the right position in order to do the cases at these academic medical centers. And, you know, it's different, different, right? And so I couldn't agree with you more about the fact that we've got to make sure that we do everything we can do to support high quality, you know, training programs for that. Medtronic's philosophy, we have a cardiac surgery program as well. So our philosophy is we've got to support surgeons and make sure that's going to happen. What we had hoped would happen, um, which may be right or not right, is that we'd rather have these surgeons actively involved in every program that we do. And whether it be mitral, you know, whether it be aortic, whether it be, you know, tricuspid as we move there, surgeons need to be either at the table or actively involved. But, but I, don't, I don't know how we get to your question is how do you support more open procedures other than just bringing more patients in? Right. So I think the, the one thing that we can focus on to help everybody is the fact that still in this country, there's an undertreatment, particularly in disparate communities, where all the people who could get treated, whether it be with surgery or transcatheter valves, are not getting treated. Now, maybe it's saturating a little bit in the Northeast, but down here, I think you have tremendous opportunities to bring more patients in that will go to surgery or to go to, to transcatheter therapy. But we can't do this without heart surgeons. You know, we have a specialty on the transcatheter side. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, and this is Medtronic's dedication of philosophy, which hasn't changed a bit. In 2010, there were 25 partner sites across the country. Penn was one of them. So, you know, there were 25 partner sites. We went to all the partner sites and said, hey, we're going to start a trial three years behind everybody else. Are you interested? Zero of the 25 partner sites would come join us in this saga. So then Medtronic said, okay, it's kind of out of the surgical side with John Lidicote. I don't know if you know him or not, but John Lidicote, he said, okay, fine. We're going to have an investigator meeting that talks about our core valve device. And we're going to invite 80 clinical sites. And we're not going to, we don't care who the, who the ICs are. We're going to invite them off our best clinicians on the surgical side. So all the highest quality, not the 25, but the next group of people came in to an investigators meeting that was in, that was in, um, uh, that was in Minneapolis in the middle of December, imagine. 
So 80 clinical sites are there selected by the heart surgeons and maybe the heart surgeon could bring an IC with them if they wanted to, but as selected by the heart surgeons were the one that drove that. So it was the Deebs and all, all the, the rear, all the high profile surgeons. There was Von Starnes, all, all those guys came in. Then the ICs were sitting on this side and the cardiac surgeons were sitting on this side of the room. And Tom Armitage said, oh, by the way, it, you know, there's 80 sites here for our clinical trial. We're only going to select 40. Um, and the number one criteria on which we're going to judge whether you're going to be with a 40 is how well you get along with your heart team. And we're going to go like, take a break now and just, we'll see that the rest of the meeting, we're going to figure out who, whose heart team works, works as a unit. So a lot of these cardiac surgeons have not talked to the ICs and not to, they go out to break and they say, okay, how many kids do you have? Okay. Where do they go to school? Okay. Cause they're afraid they're going to get quizzed. Right. It's like, how close is the heart team? Right. So they came back in and there was, there was, there was symbiosis. Right. And then we had Conti and Deeb and everybody who came to an active part of the program. So it's a long-winded access to your harder question, but we've got to make sure that that heart team concept continues. And we got to make sure that surgery stays strong as a profession. I agree hundred percent with that, but, and Medtronic has done that. I think we've tried to do that uh, more than others because, you know, Boston Scientific and Abbott, they've not had to do those randomized trials like Edwards has and we have. So we, we actually have a pretty good pool of heart surgeons. We want to keep it. So, okay. Yeah, no, that, that was fantastic. And I think it's, um, uh, let, let me just add to that a little bit in terms of where we are. Yeah. Um, I, I feel in Sloan, you may want to weigh in. I don't know. And Kyle is here as well. But I think, you know, that's very strong. That culture of collaboration yeah, is yeah. really, really strong here. Um, but we recognize that, uh, you know, in the country and in Europe, especially in the United States, right? Because we're so decentralized with our quaternary care, tertiary care. A lot of decisions are driven by kind of local economics and local health system desires. I think it's a real issue. I mean, you talked about some programs you've been to where they do 50 or fewer bypasses and similarly in terms of angioplasty. So how does a company like that, you know, walk the line between supporting local smaller centers, but then mandating some of the work being done in higher quality? How do you marry that volume quality sort of interface? Yeah. Um, and is that is that an industry type driver because you guys do have a lot of say is that a guidelines driver is that a reimbursement um well that's the, that that is the critical issue that we had on tuesday with the tvt fda cms yeah saying okay if the ncd goes away then there's no monitoring quality at least if the ncd is there then we can follow by public reporting what how the outcomes are at these smaller centers and our obligation is to make sure that the center that's just newly experienced is first case isn't a complex like ronnie did live They're not a complex <laughs> of plavian from the right side and percutaneous so in a 90 100 i don't know she was 100 years old on it i can't remember how she was she was like she was like and and it was it was very successfully done by the way but that's not the first case that these smaller centers should be doing we have to have an obligation to make sure this probably isn't the case that you should be doing at this center um, but it's hard. It's hard. It's, it's a one step further problem as we think about the issues of disparities of care. Because when we talk about disparities of care, who's not getting it? Well, we know the black population is not getting it. Latino populations are not getting it. They're poor, poor is not getting it. And, and when you map out by zip code where there are not TAVR centers, they're exactly in the areas where there's undertreatment. And so one of the solutions has been is like, let's support those centers, but we're gonna have to have double support there, right? Because now they're doing something that they're not normally familiar with in a patient population who by definition is sicker. Mm -hmm. And so as we expand, we probably don't need the 20th and 21st Taver Center in Atlanta. But if you go to some places of Alabama and Wyoming and other places that are like Kentucky, probably we do need a Taver Center there, but we need to do it in a very, very special way. Yeah. Um, any other questions? I mean, we talked about structural, we talked about coronary. Um, I want to make sure, see if there are any other questions. Oh, we're going to keep talking structural here. I was hoping to have a minute for renal denervation, but Ronnie, please. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. This was an excellent talk. Um, a bit depressing because now I realize I'm too old now to invent anything. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. So um, the question I have is about bicuspid aortic valve 
and tavern bicuspid it's you know obviously the one area that we don't have we do have data but we don't have any randomized data to support this and we do see a lot of patients that come in that are low risk um, that request taver um, i'm just curious what your thoughts are about uh, tavern bicuspid down the line and if we're ever going to have any sort of randomized trials and um, just briefly so um, so it's a great question. Um, it's, it is the, the younger patient population. But look, a tricuspidish bicuspid and an 80-year-old, we've probably treated them seven days a week. It's the 65-year-old that has a calcified raffi, asymmetric leaflets, lots of, lots of you know, years ahead of them, low risk. Well, we don't know what to do. At the TVT conference, we'll be presenting our three-year bicuspid data, single arm, not randomized, single arm, out to three years. Um, and Farazar is gonna do that. So we'll have that three-year data to say how we're gonna do. But that's not, that's not gonna be the information that we need. We need long-term information. Now, we have been approached, as Edwards has been approached, as others have been approached, about doing a randomized trial in younger, lower risk patients with bicuspid disease. Um, I don't know if that's a smart trial for us to do because I think that a 65-year-old who has bicuspid disease in an ugly anatomy, that they should probably have surgery. And I, I think it's getting to clinical equipoise between what surgeon's gonna say, I'm gonna be better served this, where TAVR folks say, I'm not gonna, you get a very narrow group of people who, have kind of ish bicuspid disease who are younger, low risk, you might randomize. So Edwards and Marty Leon and Raj McCarve trying to push this at a number of different levels. Um, all the way back to, we tried to do it through TBT, we tried to do it through the CTSN, we tried to do it through a number of different places, NIH. Nobody in the US is interested in doing a randomized trial for this. The Notion 2 trial is being done in, in the Nordic countries. They have a small percentage of patients and they're younger patients that are bicuspid. And we've heard rumors that Stevan Windecker and Didier Cheche in Europe are gonna do a randomized trial with bicuspids. We're not gonna be able to do that here. We may do a good registry, which is what Marty Leon's latest proposal is to try to do a good registry of patients with bicuspid. But I think in most cases, at least now, the if it's a toss up, about which one to be doing, I think surgery kind of wins. This, that's my philosophy about it. But I still see patients and if a 65 year old comes in with nasty bicuspid disease, I do everything I can do to convince them to do surgery. Um, we're sticking with the surgical, uh, with the, the structural question. I, I do wanna have a minute, if you don't mind, um, just talking about renal denervation because that's another, potentially extremely yeah, impactful yeah, yeah, therapy yeah. with the, you know, you kind of went through it quickly, but any of us, particularly in this area, the underserved population, yeah, 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 yeah. very, very high penetrance of both heart failure. Ugo Egelum is our head of heart failure here, uh, but also hypertension, resistant hypertension in clinics. Um, so I guess um, if I may just get your take on how likely is it that, um, the Simplicity device and the other devices will be available in the next 12 months or so? And then how much of a runway do health systems need to have to plan for that? You know, the clinics and the infrastructure, and what have we learned from the structural world to help prepare us? That's an excellent question. So, so again, I don't have any inside information to what the FDA panel is gonna do, but there'll be FDA panels in the summertime, early fall for both Recore and for, uh, for us. And they haven't given us dates and all that kind of stuff, but there'll be something in the early fall that will be a panel meeting. The safety data for renal innovation is outstanding. Um, so the, the, you know, you don't, we don't mess up the renal arteries. They don't come back stenosed. We don't have to put stents in them. There's not dissections. I mean, it's a safe procedure for both Recore and for, for ours. Um, the efficacy seems to relate to what the baseline blood pressure is. And I'll give you two examples. If you're diabetic and have a blood pressure of 130, then you may get five to six millimeters of reduction which may be good for a diabetic patient, but it's not that same dramatic piece. If you have a patient whose systolic blood pressure is on 160 on three meds, that's gonna be a 22, 25 you know, millimeter of mercury reduction. So it's gonna to relate to this. So the part of it about who's gonna benefit, I think the simplest question is, when we do subset analysis, everybody gets better, but the ones who get the biggest better are the ones that have the highest blood pressure on meds. 
So I think that most hospital systems are going to say, look, you're on three meds and you still have a systolic blood pressure 150 on three good meds and you're sure the patients are taking them, that this is probably a good candidate for renal innovation. As it, as it turns out, our hypertension pressures are pretty good. Um, when you go to four and five meds, then you can get everybody's blood pressure down. But the kind of threshold for me is three meds. And so I think the systems being identified, those folks, where they come from is very controversial. You know, so they can come from nephrologists, they can come from endocrinologists, they can come from cardiologists, they can come from PCPs. We're going to have to establish hypertension treatment guidelines. And my, my contribution to the Medtronic on the side is like, we start on a background of solid medical therapy. Once we have solid medical therapy, you're still refractory, move on. But just a little dose of one medicine and say, okay, the blood pressure is high, go to renal innovation. I don't think that's what we should do. We have to start with a good background of medical therapy. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see how kind of the value proposition, the reimbursement comes through because yeah. a lot of these patients are asymptomatic and it's the usual challenge of kind of convincing all the stakeholders that a, a very, very impactful intervention. Um, and that's where it kind of, it really ties into population health and kind of, you know, that, that aspect. Well, um, listen, we're a few minutes after four. I know many of you may have additional questions for Dr. Popma. But let me thank you so much oh, for that for presentation. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'll come to talk to him. Yeah.